Well, turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. We have been working our way through the book of Malachi. If you're uh, new with us, if you're, if you're not familiar with where Malachi is, um, if you know where the New Testament begins, just turn a page or two before that. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. And just to maybe catch you up a little bit, if this is your first time with us, we've been going through this book verse by verse. And what we have talked about is there's six arguments that make up the book of Malachi. Uh, Six arguments between God and the Israelites, mainly the priests, but also the Israelites in general. And so we've we've, kind of had four word titles for this uh, set of arguments to help us as we go, that we're not just closing the book. We're done preaching through that, so we're done thinking on that. But we're going to continue to think, what have we learned? What, have, what has God spoken through the book of Malachi? And to help us with that, we kind of try to make these four-word arguments that we can think back on and think, okay, I think I can remember the big picture of Malachi, and so I could be able to communicate that to my own heart or to someone else if I was talking to him. So let's just kind of quiz, okay? Um, and, and you can impress the guests this morning with this, possibly the last time we go through this. Um, but six of, of the arguments, okay? Four-letter words, you got it. I mean, four, not four-letter words. No. Four-word phrases, so those are better, okay? Number one was, I have loved you. Now, these are powerful, wonderful things. So, I have loved you is not the point of it. So, you want to, all right, here we go. Number two was, Where is my honor? Okay, that's God speaking to the people. Where is my honor? Number three, you've been faithless. Some of you are nailing this. Good job. And I don't don't think you have notes or anything. You're doing great, okay? Number four, you have wearied me. You have wearied me. Number five, you are robbing me. You are robbing me. And then number six, You speak against me. Good job. You're going to be able to remember that, okay? Um, All intentions were this would be the, this will be the last sermon in Malachi. It may be, okay? We'll see. I have notes for all of the rest of Malachi. I don't know how far I'm going to get this morning. We'll see, okay? Lord is good. But, you know, I was thinking kind of going into this message, um, I was speaking at camp a week and a half ago uh, at a camp in Pennsylvania and had gone through most of the week and was a busy week and speaking twice a day and so preparing a lot throughout the day. And I was headed from one building to another, um, just kind of on a mission, like going to go from here to here and kind of get ready for the next uh, chapel service. And as I'm walking, I happened to look up, which is a good thing to do, uh, and the sky was just beautiful. I mean, just bright blue sky, maybe a cloud here or there, just beautiful. And what had occurred to me, I was so busy that I had not stopped at all this week. I mean, at all that week, I had not paused, stopped just to gaze up and glorify God just by what he had done above me. I mean, uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens are on purpose. They're made to do something. They glorify God. They, they cause us to look at them and say, God, you're greater than I am. 
You're bigger than I am. And, and I'm just looking at this like section and you made all of the heavens. And, and what occurred to me, I was so busy that I had not noticed God's glory above me. And we can do that. We can get so wrapped up in ourselves and so wrapped up in our stuff, our busyness, that we neglect and even forget about important things, really important things, like the glory of God and like other things from Scripture. We can get so wrapped up that there are things that that we ought to be thinking about and meditating on and, and looking to that should cause us to tremble and to worship, and we don't even think about them. Like, let me ask you, how long has it been since you've thought about eternity? Biblically thought about eternity. Not like harps and clouds and, and man, I can't wait to get up there, you know? Like, but honestly just thought, what does it really mean for someone to be apart from Christ? What does it really biblically mean for someone to not know Christ? What does it really mean for someone to be in Christ? For someone to have a relationship with Jesus? What does that really mean? How does that affect what I do Every single day. How does that affect how I think? How does that affect the way that I live? Because the thing that's been occurring to me and what I've been thinking about this week and last week and, and really dwelling on is, is I've been thinking everything is eternal. Eternity is at stake in everything. We talked last week about how God is always listening in. God doesn't just have a window into church services. He's listening into those who fear him and he's listening into those who do not fear him. And it says in Malachi 3 how he's keeping that book of remembrance of the righteous and good deeds of those who fear him. He's listening. And as I've just thought through that, it's just just kind of been heavy on me that everything is eternal. Eternity is at stake in everything that I do. Every conversation that I have. Eternity is at stake right now. Now what do I mean by that? If I'm in a conversation with someone, eternity is at stake there. Will they or won't they get a better picture of how much and how great of a treasure Jesus is by what comes out of my mouth and how I talk about other people and how I talk to them? That's eternal. What I say can either build up or tear down. We talked about that in Ephesians chapter 4. It's eternal. And I can say things that are eternal today for good or for bad. But it's, it's a stake in me. Do I really believe that there's a heaven for those who are in Christ and there's a hell for those who are not? And if I do, then eternity is at stake in me. Do I believe that for real? Am I proving by what I'm saying? Am I proving by how I'm treating my kids? Am I proving by how I treat you? Am I proving by how I treat God's word? Am I proving by how I work? Am I proving by how I'm a husband? Am I proving in all things that I do that there really is a heaven and a hell, and I really do believe that Christ is the treasure and that he's all. I've been thinking through that and just realizing I've got to be more eternally minded. Because if I'm thinking on heavenly things and I'm thinking on eternal things, I'm going to live completely differently. I can't make the same decisions. I can't, I can't have the same conversations if I'm thinking eternally 
as if I don't believe that it's there. It affects everything. It affects everything. What we're going to talk about today is, is pretty weighty. It's weighty on me. Um, this week, as, as I've been preparing, it's, it's, it's a heavy passage. And I'm so thankful that it's from God's Word. God's Word is truth. Jesus tells us that. He's praying for the disciples in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. And I'm so grateful as we come to things like this, as we talk about things like this, it's not on me and it's not on you to just kind of come up with ideas. What is heaven like? What's hell like? What's this like? What's this? Is God like this for real? He tells us. He tells us this is the truth. And I'm just, I'm giving to you what is the truth. That's what the Lord gives us. It's the truth. And so they're heavy things. And my prayer is that we, I, uh, approach them humbly, knowing that there's no one in this room, not me, not you, who is worthy of God's mercy. None of us. Not worthy of the mercy of God. He is gracious. He is gracious, and we don't deserve it, but he gives us it. And also, as we talk about um, eternal wrath, that there's no one here, myself included, who understands the depths or the horrors of the coming of the Lord. That we, we, There's no way we can grasp that with our mind. And so weighty stuff and heavy stuff and, and stuff that in the intro presents a Man, I'm glad I came this morning, type of, of, of thing, right? But I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for my own heart, praying that God will speak to us through his word and just do uh, a, an amazing work in every single one of us that will respond to the truth of, of what he has said um, appropriately. And so let me pray for us. Um, actually, let me read the passage, and then we'll pray um, that God will use it. Let's stand together just honoring his word. Malachi chapter 4, starting with verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. And at times it's overwhelming. I pray that you would open our eyes that we could behold wonderful things from your law. 
that you would set our eyes and our hearts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the only one through whom there is hope. I pray, Father, for humility in our hearts that you would fight self-righteousness in us and pride. God, help us to not neglect weighty things, to put them off on others, but that we would stand trembling before your word today in awe of you, a holy God, in awe of your truth, and in awe of your mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Begins chapter 4 with this word, for. Behold, the day is coming. For points back to what we were talking about last week. The Israelites had come to God and they had, with their cynicism, cynical attitudes, these words. We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They had said, it is vain, it is pointless to serve God. What is the profit? What's the point of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord? And God responds to them. And he goes through verses 16 through 18. He says, for those who fear me, those who esteem my name, they shall be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. But, verse 18 through chapter 4, then once more you shall see, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. And so this word for points back mainly to verse 18. You're going to see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God, whether you think that you will or not, whether you believe God or not, whether you think it's pointless to serve God or not, whether you think it's pointless to obey His commands or not, at some point, you're going to see the distinction. God says, I'll make the distinction for you, and it will be obvious, those who serve me, those who fear me, and those who do not. And he goes on to explain In chapter 4, for behold, the day is coming. The day is coming. What day is coming? A day of judgment. A day of judgment. He goes on, skipping the next phrase, he says, The day is coming when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. When all those who do not fear me, we want to take this in context, okay? Those who do not fear me will stand before me and will be judged. Those who are arrogant, those who are evil will be judged and they will be stubble. They will be destroyed. They will be consumed. There's a day determined and known by God's scripture teaches. None of us knows today. None of us knows today. It could be today. It could be this hour. This, we're going to talk about how God shows mercy and he gives warnings. I mean, that's the end of this passage. God is so merciful and he gives warnings before his coming. But it could be today. 
It could be in a year. It could be in two years. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. We just don't know when he's coming. He just says it's coming. It's coming. I'm coming, the Lord says. There's a day and God knows when that day is. We don't know. One thing that we know from God's word is he's coming. And his word never fails. It never fails. I, the Lord, do not change, he says in Malachi 3. I don't change. What I've, what I've said will take place. It's going to happen. I'm coming for you. I'm coming. You look through the Old Testament, you think about the disciples and, and the Pharisees who thought when Jesus came on the scene and, and, and claimed to be the Messiah and the disciples believed in him, he's the one to come. And what did they think? This is it. This is the coming. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going he's to take out our enemies and he's going to set up his kingdom. And this is it. We're going to reign with the Messiah and his kingdom is going to be a great kingdom and it's going to be a kingdom of peace and he's going to reign over us. They were wrong. They missed the part in the Old Testament where Jesus was going to come and he was going to lay down his life for us so that if anyone was in him, he would be forgiven. They missed that. But that is still coming. It's still coming. You look through the Old Testament and it points to the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. Here in Malachi chapter 4, you go to the New Testament in Matthew 24 and 25 where Jesus talks about the end of time. And in Matthew 25, we mentioned it last week. When the Son of Man comes, not if He comes, but when He comes, He's coming. He's going he's to assemble everyone and, and He's going to separate the sheep from the goats and He's going to judge In Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, where Jesus goes through and talks about the signs of the the end, and he says just a, a wonderful passage for those who are in Christ. As he goes through and foretells the destruction of Jerusalem and the things that are to come, he gets to verse 28 and he says, Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. Now here's the thing. That is what our response should be like. But so often, anytime the day of the Lord discussion comes up, we begin to get a little fearful. A lot of what ifs come up in our mind. And, and what's this, what is this about? Why are you talking about hell? Why are you talking about the end time? What? I'm getting a little nervous here. I don't know if I like this. And And instead of what Christ has said, that we ought to be so grateful and so thankful for what Christ has accomplished, so that when these terrible and horrible things begin to take place, we don't tremble and hide and cry out and ask for the rocks to fall on us as some will do at the end times, Revelation says. But that we lift up our heads and we straighten up and we say, our redemption is near. Jesus is coming. He's coming. We don't know when he's coming, but he's coming. That should affect everything I do. It should should affect every decision that I make. The day is coming. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, this book called Revelation. We've not been left with a vagueness of maybe Jesus is coming back or maybe he's not. The scriptures have been very, very clear. He's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. 
My prayer is that we would, we would believe that, genuinely believe that, and respond as those who fear and love God. And that it would change the way we live, it would change the way we think, it would change everything. He, he gives us some details here in, in these verse, first couple verses of chapter 4 about the day of the Lord, the day that is coming. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. It's burning like an oven. The day is coming, and it is burning like an oven. Now, we remember um, earlier we talked about the refiner's fire, the refining fire, and the refiner who is coming, and that's Jesus, and he's going to refine, and, and, and just as a, as a silversmith refines silver and burns off the dross, the impurities, and continues to scrape that off, scrape that off until there's an image of himself as he looks down and can see his image. And that's the work, the process that, that believers go through. And it's a painful process. It's not always a joyful skipping along. This is such an easy life. Now that I know Jesus process, sometimes it's a painful, joyful process. But this is a different kind of burning. That was a burning that purified. This is a burning that consumes. That judges. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It makes us think of when Revelation talks about the coming of the Lord, when the Son of Man comes in Revelation chapter 19, starting with verse 11. Just think about these things as I read it. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Skip forward to chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's heavy and real and terrifying. And true. One thing that I um, know, that I know about hell, is that I don't know how bad it really is. Can't comprehend how bad it really will be. It's a it's a horrible, horrible thing. But there's something else we can know about the day of the Lord. When we look at this passage, and that is that it is escapable through Christ. God's judgment is escapable through Christ. Verse 2 says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Who, who will be burned like an oven and who will be set ablaze? Those who do not fear the Lord. That's what we, we saw in, in, in uh, chapter 3, starting with verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed him. Those are the ones that he says shall be mine, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then he says here, again in chapter 4, verse 2, but for you who fear my name. So there's the contrast. There's some who fear the name of the Lord, and for them the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. They will go out leaping like calves from the stall. They will be his treasured possession. They will be mine, says the Lord. And then there's those who are those who don't fear God, the arrogant, the evil, and they will be burned, they will be stubble, they will be set ablaze. The contrast there is just almost we can't even comprehend, and we shouldn't be able to. Such joy and such horror at, at one point in time. You who fear my name, the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. I just want to 
stop for a second and, and say that um, this is like, this is serious and frightening and severe and not a fairy tale. And so it would serve us well to, to, to just, where are we at with this? Do we, is this, there's, there's a couple responses that could take place. We see things about hell and, and, and there's, a, there's a flesh tendency that may come up in you and, and think, no, 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 it's not that bad. God is love, God is love, God is love. It can't be that bad. There can be a, 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 a just up in us that's just terrified. It could just be peace and joy. And we, we see verse 2, and it's just like, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. But the thing that um, troubles me as, I, as, as I'm called to preach this is I don't want to manipulate anyone into heaven if that's possible I don't want to preach a sermon about the wrath of God and the horrors of hell and then and get people to think well I better run to Jesus because I don't want to go there it's not about that my my desire for you is that you see what a great treasure Jesus is that you see that someone who would look at God's wrath and, and the wording that is used is the fury of his wrath the fury of his wrath that someone who would look at his wrath so intense, just as perfect in his wrath as he is in his grace, just as perfect in his justice as he is in his mercy, that someone that would look at God's wrath and say, I'll take that. You give that to me. I'll bear your wrath. I'll, you just pour it out on me, Father. I'll do it so that my chosen the ones that I love can go free. It is heavy. I so long for you to see not the terrors of hell, but the beauty of Jesus. And I know the temptation is to come to a service where a pastor preaches a sermon like this, and while this is just another hellfire and brimstone sermon, it's not. It's, it's the glory of Jesus. And how loving He is. And, and for us to think, for us to be so arrogant as to say a loving God, how could a loving God do that to someone? How could a loving God slaughter His Son so that I could go free? I deserve it. I deserve what He's saying here. Jesus was righteous, and he took it. But the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So I don't want you to think that in any way I'm trying to manipulate you. Jesus is glorious, and you should follow him. Not to save you from hell, but because he's worth it. He's the treasure in the field that he talks about in Matthew 13. He's the Glory. He's the glorious one. The language that the Bible uses, that Jesus uses, to describe the eternal state of those who are arrogant and evil is horrifying. And, and we need to be sure to understand that the Bible is clear that every single one of us here is arrogant and evil. So when he says that this is for the arrogant and evil, 
we are all arrogant and evil. We're all sinners. Righteousness that leads to heaven is not found outside of Jesus Christ. Paul teaches in Romans 4 and in Galatians 4 that for those in Christ, we are counted, we are credited righteous in him. So it's not our righteousness that sets us apart. It's not that we have manufactured some fear for God. It's what he has done inside of us. It's Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and what was credited his righteousness to our account. So don't want to get mixed up with this. Well, if I can just decide to fear God. No, 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 no. It's what Jesus did. And fear of God leads us to Christ. Jesus said there's there's only one way to the Father. I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. That may rub us wrong. It may rub you wrong. We may think that's not fair. What about the guy in the jungle? What about this person here? What about this person here? It's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if it matters that much to you that you get upset with God about the fact that the person's in the jungle and doesn't know the name of Jesus, you should go to the jungle and tell them. Because Scripture says He's the only way. And that alone is why this condemnation is escapable. Romans 8, 1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None. And that's what it's referring to here in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The Son of Righteousness is Jesus. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. It's, It's possible, probable, that Zechariah is referring to this verse when he prophesies in Luke 1, 78, verse 78. Just think about this picture here, okay? I mean, the picture in Malachi is just amazing. I mean, God gives us such a vast picture of who he is and what he is like and what he commands and what he absolutely deserves and all that he's worthy of and what the result is for those who do not respond to his holiness and his greatness and what the result is for those who do. Just this amazing picture through the whole book. But just think about... The picture here. Compare this for those who fear my name with Malachi 1, verse 14. I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And then he says here, for those who fear me, I will be feared, and for those who fear me, Chapter 3, verse 17, they will be mine. They'll be my possession. I will spare them. Chapter 4, you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, and for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Just this picture of happy forever, full of God. That, that's, the, that's the contrast in Revelation chapter 21. We see what happens to those who are evil, who are wicked, but we see what happens to those who are in Christ in chapter 21 at the beginning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That, that section is so filled with happy things. I mean, forever happy things. No more, no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. New heaven, new earth, holy city, amazing, just amazing things. But we have to see, just like there's the words in Malachi are saying, we have to see that what he's saying here in Malachi, the, the leaping and the happiness and the joy and all of those things is not dependent on no crying and no pain and no, it's God. We're with God forever. He's with us forever. And the joy of heaven will be Him. And what it says, we get to be with Him forever and ever and ever. And so for those who fear me, it's a different story. You'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. There'll be joy. There'll be joy. And you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You'll see the distinction. Those who are wicked will be crushed. They'll be crushed under the soles of your feet, says the Lord. Just a wonderful, wonderful picture for those who are in Christ. So I want to say a couple of things um, about hell and about eternity first of all is hell really eternal is hell really eternal does the bible teach that hell is eternal or is it vague is there some things that we loop you know hoops that we could jump through and, and come to the conclusion that no it's not eternal it's just bad for a while book of jude Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example, an example, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Eternal fire. You go back a few books. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five through twelve. Starting with verse five, it says, This is evidence. This is evidence of the righteous judgment. Just real quick. You notice they don't even question. This is evidence. That's what he says. God has spoken and this is evidence. Here's your evidence. God has spoken 
This is evidence. It's not, maybe we should sit down and evaluate. Well, God, what did he mean when he said this? Did he, do we want to twist that and see maybe if the, maybe hell doesn't have to be so bad? Maybe, maybe, this is evidence for us. Just clear. Just, God's spoken. His word is truth. Just look at it and read it. Just see for yourself. What does he say? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also, you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is eternal and it is horrible. Second thing is, and I want to be careful with terminology here but um, for Christians beware beware I use those terms Christians and beware very carefully and sincerely I'm not judging for some of you the response should be like Paul for me to live as Christ and to die as gain we should say like Paul come Lord Jesus we want you to come we want you to come but don't don't be like the Israelites and don't be self-righteous. Jesus says there are many, many on that day who will call me Lord, Lord, who will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. There's a passage in, in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5, verse, starting with verse 18. I have mentioned in sermons at least a handful of times, verses 21 through 24, which we will read, but let's start with verse 18. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What, what does he mean by this? And what do I mean by Christians beware? I mean beware. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. If like the Israelites, you're coming in and you're singing songs to God and you're lifting offerings to God and there's no change in your heart whatsoever, beware. Why would you hasten that day? Why would you long for that day, Amos says? Why would you want that day to come if you're not, if you're not changed by God, if you're not changed by the gospel? Why would you want that day to come? It will not be light and happiness for you. So be careful, be careful to say, I have Jesus. The question is, are you following him? Are you following Jesus? Jesus never asked his disciples, did you at some point, guys, let's stop, let's huddle up, let's make sure. Did you at some point pray a prayer? Did you go to VBS? Did you go to Sunday school? Did you sign a card? Did you? They didn't say that. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. There's a, there's a massive difference there. Somebody takes up his cross and walks through the streets of Jerusalem. People aren't inviting them into their homes. They're saying goodbye. Their life is over. There's a new life now is the point. So are you following Jesus? I hope I hope that that's the case. And again, I'm not I'm not bringing this up to to scare those who are in Christ into thinking they're not. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're a new creation. Rejoice in that and and rejoice in the truth of Malachi chapter four, verses two and three and 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 all of the New Testament that says there's no condemnation for you. Rejoice in that. But don't be self-righteous. Know that our righteousness is not righteousness apart from Christ. The reason I say that is because I think we live in a fearless day. Now, here we are at the end of Malachi, and the whole message of Malachi is, you don't fear me. You don't tremble at me. You don't stand in awe of me. God says in Isaiah 66 too, this is the one on whom I'll look. This is the one whom I'll esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And he's saying to the Israelites, you don't tremble. You don't fear me. You don't stand in awe of me. You don't awe, you're not in awe of me. You don't honor me. I mean, you think through these things. I've loved you and, and I'm a great king. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. But they lived as if he didn't love them and he wasn't great. Where is my honor? Do we stand in awe? Do we honor? He says a son honors his father, but where's my honor? A son honors his father by obedience when dad isn't around. Are we honoring God? Are we fearing him? He says you've been faithless. God wasn't affecting their marriages or who they married even. What about us? You've wearied me. You put my patience to the test. You are a burden to me. Because you don't trust God in the midst of evil and you blame him 
for it. You're robbing me. You're living like you own everything. You steal from me. You don't fear me. You speak against me. You talk and you live as if I am pointless. And it seems very much to me like we actually sometimes in our actions fear God less in the church in America today than these Israelites did. And these words are spoken to them. Do we truly fear God? If we don't truly fear God, then the words of Amos should, should strike us in the heart. Woe to us. If we are longing for the day of the Lord and we don't fear God. Lastly, true belief in Malachi 4 and what it says about the great day of the Lord. And we'll get to this next week, but at the end, or in, in verse 5, he says it's the great and awesome day of the Lord. If you have the New American Standard, that word is actually um, terrible, right? Terrible, the great and terrible day of the Lord. True belief in that results in a radical life change towards others that they would be spared. And that, that starts with me. I preach that to me as much as to anyone. Matthew 25 that we talked about last week, when, when he says when the Son of Man comes, he's going to separate the nations as a man separates sheep from goats. And he's going he's gonna to evaluate by what we did you believe the gospel? What did you do with the gospel? You believe the gospel? How, how did it transform the way you treated people? How did it transform the way you looked at other people? How did it transform the way you love people? A, a genuine belief in the reality of hell has to change the way that we live. I mean, think of Romans 9. Paul says at the beginning of Romans 9, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I think it's important that he said that because I think most of us would read these first three verses and say, no way. How? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Why, Paul, would you be in great sorrow and unceasing anguish? You're in Christ. You're a new creation. There's no condemnation for you. You just said that 30-some verses earlier. So why would you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish? For I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. If we truly, truly believe that God is a God of wrath, and He is, whether we believe it or not. And that He is a God of justice and that He will judge the nations. And He will, whether we believe it or not. He says He will. Then that has to change. If we truly believe that there is a hell and it's more horrible than we can comprehend. And that there is a Christ who came to rescue us and save us and took God's wrath on himself so that we would not have to suffer and we could be with him forever? We, cannot, we can't live the same. We can't just walk through life being passed and bumping shoulders with people who don't know that they're going to spend eternity there. 
People who don't care that they're going to spend eternity there, there and not do anything. There should be sorrow. There should be anguish. There should be prayers. There should be words coming out of our mouth. There should be a life that looks like Jesus. So that others will say he is great. That's why Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that they see your good deeds and glorify your father who's in heaven. And so how do we respond? I'm just going to read two passages to close. Back in the book of Jude first. Verses 17 through 25. How we should respond to the truth of the day of the Lord. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Be careful, he's saying. Save them by snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy with fear. Don't get entangled in the sins that they're committing. Be careful. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And then Second Peter chapter 3. Starting with verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We pray for us, Lord. Would you work through your word in our hearts? We just read how we are to live. Purposeful, God-glorifying life. Life of godliness, a life of peace that exalts our King, who we fear, who we stand in awe in, we honor, that we would save others from the wrath that is to come through Christ. So I pray, Lord, for genuineness. In my own heart, that I would believe the things that I have read and taught this morning. Genuinely believe that you would give me a heart like Christ and a heart like Paul. 
that we would be in anguish even, deep sorrow, desiring that you would use us, Lord, that we would boast in the cross, that we would boast in your grace, that we would boast in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that others might be saved. That we would see this is just a flash, Lord, this life, just a mist. It's going to be here and it's gone. And what we do in this short mist matters. Help us to not waste our lives, Lord. Help us to live in fear of you and for the glory of you. That we walk in fear and the comfort of the Holy Spirit as the disciples did. That we'd be forever changed by the truth of your word. We'd be forever changed that we were on a course that led us to an eternal fire. More intense than anything we could ever comprehend and that your, your son Jesus stepped in. You rescued us, Lord. You saved us. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, search hearts this morning. If there's anyone that's not in you, Jesus, would you save today? Would they come running to you, not in fear only of what would be, but in praise of what has been done? Jesus, you died. You took the wrath of God so that if anyone sees you, your beauty, your glory, and runs to you and follows you, surrenders to you, believes in the accomplished, effective work of you on the cross, they will be saved. I pray that that would happen this morning. I pray for those of us who are in Christ that we would just embrace you, praise you, worship you, thank you, and thank you with our lives as we go and how we live and the things that we do. In Christ's name, amen.